Thank you all so much. Man, is there not some amazing words in that song? I hope you all were tracking with that. How many times it said, I know your heart from what you say. I know your heart from what you've created. Amazing song. And it points us to the God of not only creation, but of salvation, right? And we need to know both of those. I got a couple of pictures I want to share you this morning. I know a lot of y'all are going, man, he talks about sports all the time, but uh, just just stick with me on this. And I know I know the Braves lost last week. You know, yeah. trying to move on through that. But this is a picture of uh, Woodrow Wilson in 1916 throwing out the first pitch. You notice something in that picture? People dressed a little differently at ball games those days. Notice almost all the ladies have hats on, as you can see. All the guys have suits and ties and coats, and they're wearing hats. Now, to us, that seems, what? That seems so crazy. Why would you dress up like that to go to a ball game when you're going to stand up and cheer and you've got all of that on? It's amazing. All right, let's go to the next picture. And a few presidents later, okay, there's FDR. And again, look at all the people and how they're dressed, okay? Even the, in, you know, there's a woman right there that's wearing a hat. You can see a couple of ladies behind her with hats on. You can see men with hats on, suits, coats, ties. Even the two managers, one for the Washington Senators and for the New York Yankees behind him, I think it's Joe McCarthy, they've got their hats tucked in right here, but they have hats. Now, I don't know how many of you young people think, that's weird. Why did people dress like that to go to a ball? Now, they didn't just do that at baseball games, did they? Football games, all sporting events, that's the way people dressed in that era. That's just how they dress. Now, all right, you can take those off. Thank you all for doing that. But if those people in that picture would see how we dress to go to baseball games or football games, today they would go, what is wrong with those people? <laughs> Why do they not dress up to go to the ball game? Why are they dressed so sloppy to go watch sport? That, I don't understand that. But it's a difference of culture, it's a difference of roles, it's a difference of style that we see throughout history, don't we? We see how that evolves over time. And roles and styles have always played a part of our culture, and those roles and styles always have an impact on people. When they see how other people dress, it impacts them, how they uh, change, maybe uh, do their role or, or achieve their role. And when roles and styles change, there's more than just a shift in functions or a new fashion statement that's occurring. There's something else going on. There's a mindset that's changing in people's minds. There's a worldview that's changing in people's minds, and they're thinking about why do we do this and should we do it differently or why should we do it differently. And those changes can and do have a powerful impact on culture. Now, I looked at some other of those pictures of uh, presidents throwing out the first pitch and kind of went down the line, and I saw like... Um, uh, Kennedy throwing out the first pitch, and there were a few less people dressed up quite as fancy, but there were still a lot of people dressed in suits and ties and, and that kind of thing. And I think during that game, he actually took off his coat. Can you imagine? <laughs> in the middle of the game. And, but there's, there's things that go on, but it, it slowly it, it went from dressing like that to dressing very casual. But it was a slow process of, of things just changing like that. Um, but most of, all, most of all of us, regardless of our age, we look back on a time in our life and we kind of go, remember when, remember that, and we remember how things were at that particular age. And as we move forward in our age or in our time or whatever, we look back on those things and compare it to the way things were when I was a kid and we go, 
what's going on? We see differences in styles and we see differences in, um, in roles and we go, man, that was so much different when I was a kid. And, and we think about those things. Um, when I was in youth ministry, when I first started my first full-time job, I worked at a church called uh, Mount Carmel Christian Church. And there was a guy there that had been the minister there um, almost 40 years. He started when he was 19 years old, and he had been the senior minister there, you know, 30-something years ago. I think he went, when, I, when he uh, finally retired, he had been there 44 years. And Jack was an old-school guy. He was fun. He was the kind of guy that would have been successful in anything he did. But one of the things that you did not do in the church is if he saw you wearing a hat in the church, he would yank it off. And so as the youth minister, I had to warn our boys especially because this was in the 90s and boys were wearing hats a lot and they were wearing them. And I'm going, you better not let Mr. Ba- Jack Ballard see you with that hat on because he will rip it off and you may not get it back. And, they, and so they were warm, but there was a few guys that were kind of cocky. because he ain't going to take my hat. And I remember a few boys got their hats taken, and they kind of act like they were going to bow up to him. And I'm telling you, he was about 60-something years old, but he would have kicked their tail still. And he would go, and he would yank hats off. Now, I'm not saying that's right or wrong, but I'm just saying I remember watching that and going, there's something about being in the church that you don't wear a hat because that shows a sign of disrespect. Anybody remember growing up with that kind of thing? You remember that. Now, again, I'm not saying if it's right or wrong, but I know I didn't ever wear a hat in the church because I didn't want to get my head, you know, knocked off or whatever. And that's just kind of the way it was. So when did that change? When did that change? It's kind of interesting when we think about that. But whether you're 30 or over and you're looking at college kids and you're going, what is that about? What is that style about? What is that thought process about? Or, and let me say to some of you younger people, you still do this whether you go, oh, that's just old people are always doing that. No, when you're like in the ninth grade, you look at sixth graders coming up and you go, what's the deal with that? When we were in the sixth grade, we never did that in middle school. But you, we all have that perspective of going, look, somebody's doing this style or they're doing this and the roles are changing, the styles are changing. Why are they doing that? And we all see that, that the newer generation is doing something different. But we've been going through this series and looking at uh, Paul's letter in 1 Corinthians, and we've called it, Has God Left the Building? Godly Wisdom in a Culture in a World that Knows Better. And the Apostle Paul continues to address cultural issues because these things were going on about how what they wore, how they responded, the different roles, and how those were changing in the first century. And so far, Paul has addressed these divisions. As you have known, they've been kind of some awkward things. Um, divisions in the church we've talked about. We've talked about immoral Uh, sexual relations. We've talked about lawsuits among believers. We've talked about marriage and divorce and all the different um, relationships and how you you navigate through all of that. And then we've, even in the last few weeks, been talking about this thing that they were trying to figure out as meat sacrifice to idols and and how should you do that. And all of this, Paul's kind of saying, look, you need to understand that we don't want to be a stumbling block to anyone learning who Christ is. We want to be a stepping stone. And so you've got to constantly watch how you behave, what you say, what you do. And today we're going to talk specifically about what you wear and how that can have an effect on culture and how people look at you. And it's true, isn't it? We, We look at something and we see something and we go, well, that person has that on, so therefore they must think 
like this or they must believe that's okay. Or do they know where that came from? Do they know where that originated? And we kind of make um, judgment calls on people based on what they wear, whether it's their hairstyle or their clothes or, or whatever it is. But we have a perception in our own little world of what that means and why that person's doing it. And it's not always fair or it's not always accurate, but that's what we do. And so Paul's trying to make them uh, aware of this. So today we're going to look at one of the issues that was causing some problems in the church. And this particular issue at first may seem like it was all about a first century thing. And you're going to go, Craig, why are we even looking at this? This is a cultural thing in that first century. And we don't, we don't have to worry about that in our culture. That's not something we deal with. So, so why even look at it? But there's something deeper because this issue is going to look like it's about the way people wear their hair, the length of their hair, or whether they wear a head covering or not in a worship service. And you're going to think it's about that, but when we really look at this, there's something deeper. So we're going to look at that. So we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 and uh, through 16, and I'm going to read that. Now follow along, and I guarantee you, a lot of you are going to have your blood pressure rise up as you read this. Just listen. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, and it is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have cut her hair off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head since he is in the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as a woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. Y'all thoroughly confused now? Say, what did we just read? That was weird. That was really weird. And I'm thinking, I'm looking around, I'm like, I don't see any of you women with your head covered. Man, y'all are in trouble. Well, just hang in there because we want to look at this. But do you realize this is one of the most asked about texts in the whole Bible? This is one of the most debated texts in the whole Bible. And I even thought about, let's just move on down the line, Craig. Let's not even get into this today. But y'all, there's a purpose for it. All Scripture is what? God breathed, inspired by the Holy Spirit, useful in training and teaching and rebuking and teaching us. And Paul is following the mandate from Christ when he says, Go into all nations, make disciples baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded. And Paul's saying, i got to teach you about everything. Now, you've heard me say in the last few weeks that Paul 
lived in Corinth with these people for a year and a half. He poured his heart and soul into these people, teaching them what it was to be a Jesus follower, and discipling them and trying to work through these issues. But he's gone off to start another church at another place, and he gets these letters, and he gets this feedback going, man, in Corinth, they are just having some problems. And so he's trying to write and say, hey, we need to address these things. But I believe there's something real important. And man, that song we just sang, y'all, Listen to how that song lines up with, with what I'm about to say, but also that Paul, in all of his letters in the New Testament, regardless of the church he was writing to, he says these things are true. One is God established order and standards for all of his creation because he is the creator, so he gets to make the standards and set the order. And that order and those standards that God has set into motion are ultimately for the good of you and I and all of creation. Think about that. He put those there for a reason. And as humans, we constantly want to change God's order and God's standards constantly throughout history. You go all the way back to the Old Testament, all through the Old Testament, all through the New Testament. People want to change the standards. They want to change God's created order. You know why they want to change that? Because they don't want to change their behavior. I want to change the standards because I don't like God's order. I don't want to change my behavior. I just think I want to change the standards. But the problem with that is, is in our culture, do, do people have a different idea of what the standards should be? Absolutely they do. Go on social media, go on Facebook. Everybody, we're far, are all over the farm about things. So God says, no, I've put these standards in place. And you can try to change them all you want, but they're still my standards. It's still my word. You need to change your behavior. That's where it starts, your heart, your mind, your soul. And God reestablished and he displayed his order and his standards in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus displayed that. There was order. He says, I and the Father are one, but I came because my Father told me. And I don't do anything without my Father's approval and telling me what to do. He was submissive to the Father in everything. So God reestablished and displayed that order and God's standards in Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection. And that order is to save us and to save us from our behavior and resurrect us to the people that God always created us to be. So we have to understand that as we think about this. And that's why I say, because your blood pressure probably got up a little bit when you heard some of this stuff, but stay with me. Well, in this text, we see that during worship, and keep in mind, in this first century, there weren't church buildings like we have here, or maybe even little country church buildings. It was a very different way of worshiping. There were synagogues, there were temples, there were um, uh, you know, pagan temples, as we've talked about uh, throughout Corinth. But people were meeting in homes. They were meeting outside in groups. They were meeting in different buildings. It was very different, but they were still meeting. They were still praying together. They were still worshiping. And, and keep in mind, there was no New Testament yet. Paul is just taken from the other apostles, and he's teaching people, and that's going out. And then these letters that he's writing are going from church to church, and they're saying, oh, that's what we're supposed to do in that situation. So this is what's going on. But he's saying there's some things going on in worship with the way people are either covering their heads or not covering their heads. There's some people who are prophesying, and that doesn't necessarily mean predicting the future, but maybe just sharing something from God's word, uh, sharing something that, that God has done in their life that's prophesying. And men and women were doing this in the church and they were praying. But some of the women were not praying with head coverings and some of the men were. And he's like, this is not God's established order. And you're like, what's the big deal? Well, he's going to get into that. So let's listen. And Paul is saying, hey, you don't, 
You're not helping people see who God is and who Christ is when you are unnecessarily ignoring social standards and God's established order. So he says, let me kind of straighten that out for you. So Paul addressed this head on like he does all these other issues. And he says, because God has called him to share the gospel of Christ, then he needs to teach them everything that Jesus has commanded. So he's going to do. So he says, Paul starts with this. The head of man is Christ. That seems okay. The head of woman or the wife is the man or the husband. <clears throat> I know some of y'all don't like that. The head of Christ is God. He's saying there's an order there. doesn't mean anybody's any better than anybody else, and that's where we kind of get fired up. But he's saying, no, this is the way God put this order. And there is an order of authority that Paul's making clear within the Christian community that they need to understand because it's gotten out of order. So if a man prays or prophesies with his head covered, he dishonors his head. Well, who did Paul say his head was? Christ. So he's dishonoring Christ. So if a man or husband covers his head as a woman would do in this culture, then he dishonors Christ. Why is he doing that? If a woman or a wife prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, she dishonors her head. Well, who is her head? Her husband. Well, what if she's not married, Craig? Well, maybe she's dishonoring possibly the pastor of that church or maybe uh, uh, the pastor or the elder or the overseer of that church. And it's saying a message to people in that culture that she doesn't cover her head. What does that mean? That sounds like she's being disrespectful. Did she mean to do that? And Paul's saying you've got to think about that. And Paul even went on to say that it would be as if her head were shaved. And you go, now are we talking about authority or are we talking about hair length? Anybody confused on that? Well, actually he's talking about both. He's relating all of this to this authority thing that's very important. To make a point. And in this culture, if a woman had a shaved head, it had some sexually implicit um, immoral implications. Because if somebody saw a woman with really, really short hair or a shaved head, it might have meant in Jewish circles that sometimes in certain Jew Jewish circles that if you had been a part of adultery, they would make you shave your head, almost like a big red A. Remember that? Scarlet letter kind of thing? That's what you did. People go, oh, she's committed adultery. Or, oh, uh, uh, you know, and, and everybody would know. What an embarrassing thing, but that's what it would be. And then there was also in the Greek culture, uh, in the Roman culture, there was... Uh, uh, homosexuality and lesbian and sometimes in lesbian relationships there was uh, short hair but the more masculine one that didn't start in our culture that's been going on throughout history but this was something else and here's the thing some of these people who had committed adultery some of these people who were in homosexual relationships some of these people who were um, uh, uh, doing sexual immorality in these other temples they had repented of those things and they had come into the church and received Jesus as their Lord and Savior and that was a great thing but sometimes they were still practicing some of the same things they did before that and Paul's saying you got to be careful you don't want people to get the wrong impression so be thinking about that but also in this culture there were some social standards that most everyone knew about and how a woman was supposed to present herself not only in public but also in, in maybe even some private things like a worship service. And as I've told y'all before, in Corinth there were these uh, pagan temples and what the women did in those worship was very different than what Paul was trying to get them to do in their worship. There were prostitutions in this worship and their hair was a certain way and the way they presented themselves was a certain way and Paul says we don't want to give anybody the impression that in our worship services that's part of it because it's not. That's something we have to move away from. And so hairstyles and hair coverings could give an impression that was not only confusing to people but distracting during a worship service. Now some of you may still be going, ah, I don't get it. I think Paul's being crazy here. But let me just say this in our own culture. Um, a guy named Roger Barrier, who's a retired uh, teaching pastor from a church out in Tucson, Arizona, 
called the Casas Church. He shares a little bit about how many of y'all have seen in our country uh, Middle Eastern people, women who wear those, those robes. I think they're called yashmaks, and they wear them, and all you see is almost like a ninja, isn't it? They just have their eyes shown, but they're covered. All their heads are covered. Y'all have seen it more and more in our culture. And uh, uh, veils and s- still have four main purposes in the Middle East and other people, even in our culture. Respect, protection, modesty, and submission. That's what they're for, for women. And no respectable woman would think of going outside without that covering. And of course, we're seeing more of that, like I said, in our, in our own country. Um, but let's talk about those first three, respect, protection, and modesty. And this pastor talks about a time where he was in Turkey with his wife, and he tells about something that happened, and listen to what happened to them. He said, Julie, my wife and I got lost in the giant bazaar, which is like a shopping mall in Istanbul, Turkey. I'm not surprised. It's 20 acres of covered shops and eating places with streets that traverse and twist and turn and twirl through these pathways of lostness. We exited into a back alley, and there were a lot of men sitting around smoking and joking as Julie and I uncomfortably walked by. As we passed, they began to make the most vulgar, inappropriate, and crude sexual offers of what they wanted to do with my wife. And I remember thinking, don't they understand that's my wife? She is with me. What are they doing? I'm here to protect her. But they ignored me, and they continued their sexual assaults on my wife. Can you imagine that feeling? We were running a gauntlet, and as we finally got out of that back alley, she immediately went to a street vendor and bought a scarf, and all comments and innuendos ceased as we continued shopping with her head covered. Does that help you kind of grasp? We don't understand that. But in that culture, all those men thought, oh, she's a loose woman, and she just happens to be with that guy, but she's a loose woman because she doesn't have her head covered. And all women in our culture have their head covered, or they're a prostitute, or they're a loose woman. And so naturally that came out. And you can say, well, that's their fault. But you still got to understand culture. And when missionaries and when people go into other countries, you have to understand these things. Sir William Ramsey explains it like this. In Oriental or Asian lands, the veil is the power and honor and dignity of the woman. With a veil on her head, she can go anywhere in security and profound respect. On the other hand, without a veil, a woman's authority and dignity vanish. Just like men, women need respect, protection, and modesty. Wearing the veil in public provides all three. Now, that probably under, helps you understand how that might have affected that culture. But you still go, but what does that have to do with us? We don't need to wear that, do we? Are we supposed to be wearing that? But listen to what one commentator said. Paul affirms the rightness of following the cultural mandate to dispense with the head coverings on a woman would send entirely the wrong message in that first century and in the culture in large. In fact, Paul says that if a Christian woman refuses to wear her head covering, as some of them were doing, and Paul's addressing that... She might as well shave all her hair off, he says. A woman who refused to wear a covering in that culture was basically saying, I will not submit to God's order. Therefore, the Apostle Paul is teaching the Corinthians that hair length or the wearing of a covering by the woman was an outward indication of a heart uh, of, of attitude and their submission to God and his established authority. Now, again, that may be extreme for us, but he's saying, no, you have to think about that as a Jesus follower. How am I relating to other people, and and what is their impression? So in verses 7 through 9, Paul makes a series of statements that, again, I know y'all heard and probably went, no, wait a minute. Listen to what Paul says. Man is the glory of God. Woman is the glory of man. There ain't no glory of man. 
I know some of you ladies are thinking that. Woman came for man. Woman was created for man. What? I don't like that. So because of that, and angels, this is weird, women need a sign of authority on their hair. Well, angels? Now, what does that have to do? Now, I'm not lying. There's like 30 different interpretations of what this angel thing, I'm just going to address that real quick. What does angels have to do with it? Well, one thing we don't know exactly, and I read some of these 30, and I was like, man, they're all over the farm. But basically, Paul mentioned angels for a reason. There's a lot of theories, but basically, angels mysteriously throughout the Bible, they do what? They carry out God's work, don't they? They bring a message to somebody. They do something supernatural that makes everybody know they're a messenger of God. And you say, well, they, yeah, but they don't do that anymore. Do they not? How many of you have had someone tell you an odd story that was supernatural, and they says it had to be an angel. Have you ever had anybody say that to you? I have. Over the years, I've heard lots of them, and I'm sitting there looking in someone's eyes, and I'm going, okay, never happened to me. But the way they tell it, and you can see it in their eyes, it really happened to them. It was something that was real, that God revealed to them, and I don't know why they chose that person in that time and that situation, but I believe that happens. And Paul is saying, as we, we sang in that last song, and this is what we were talking about today, how cool music and the sermon lines up. In that song, you're talking about all the creation recognizes God's creation and his, his handiwork. And so he's saying angels were there when God created the world. And they understand his order. And they're, as they look over and they move in and out of life, they understand God's working order. So we need to understand that. I think that's why he mentions angels. But there's 29 other ob observations on that. So you can look them up on, on Google if you want to. But there's, at first glance when you hear this, it almost sounds like Paul is downgrading women and said they're supposed to be in a submissive position and that's it. And I ask you, why does that bother you? Is Paul saying that women aren't as important? Is he saying that they don't have value? No, he's not saying that. Paul's the one who said, we are all one in Christ. There is neither Greek nor Jew, slave nor free, male nor female. We are all one in what? In Christ. Paul said that very same thing to the Galatian church. But I ask you, is that based on your knowledge of God's word and order as a whole in scripture or just on this one issue? Or sometimes is it because you've bought into our feminized culture our feminized culture where we want to say, oh, there's all kinds of different genders and, and different things out there that rejects God's word because you know better. Oh, that was an archaic time in the Roman Empire, and we've gone beyond that, and nobody thinks like that anymore. No, God's word is still the same today, yesterday, and when? Forever. And we may not like it, but there's something he's trying to teach us through this. Now, some of you men might not have liked what you heard here. Well, why would I not like it? I get to be in charge. But you're not. And that's the problem. In our culture, we've let that go. We've kind of feminization of our, of our culture and, and, and our, our, our genders and our roles. They just, you know, they all get mixed up. And God said he created them male and female. Now, I know there's some pro people that have a psychological problem in grasping that, and we need to be sensitive to that and help those people through that. But when we try to change God's standards instead of our behavior, we're in a serious situation. And that's what's happening in our culture. We're literally trying to change standards instead of people's behavior and get them to be healthier people. Now, why would a man not like that? Because Paul is also reminding men that your role, and he's going back to Genesis 2 when there was the fall, and who was deceived by the serpent? That's right. Well, no, it wasn't Adam. It was Eve. It was Eve who was deceived. But what did, what did Adam do? 
Adam just went along with it. Yeah, sure, whatever you say, you know. And you know what, men? We do that with our roles as spiritual leaders in our homes and in our churches and in other things. We just kind of go, oh, you, you can do that. You read them the Bible story. You take care of that. Hey, I'm good. You're good with that. I'm good with that. And we abdicate our roles that God has given us to a lot of times to women. And you know what? They, sometimes they willingly do it. Sometimes they're frustrated. They go, well, I wish your dad would do this. I wish that leader would do that. But they're just not doing that. And Paul is saying, no, each of us has a role ordained by God, and we need to understand that. And so in verses 11 and 12, Paul states things a little differently as he says, in the Lord, however, he's made that statement that might have got your blood boiling a little bit, but he says, woman is not independent of man. Man is not independent of woman. Woman came from man, yes, but man is also born of woman. We were all born of a woman. Everything, he said, comes from God, and we need to understand that order. Do you see the different roles? And yet those roles are both essential in God's order, the male role and the female role. Not not, not one is better than the other, but they're essential to make God's creation and order work. And God's created order makes both roles valuable and necessary and needing the other. It's this mutual submission that Paul talks about in other of his letters. Now... Let me tell you a story that happens, and I hope y'all can relate to this. So um, I'm, I'm coming in the other night, and I had been fixing the brakes on my daughter's car, and I'm kind of grimy, and um, I don't know how me and my wife got on this. I think it was right about supper time, and I was like, what's for dinner because I'm starving, you know? And she's like, you know what? In our 20-something years of marriage, I don't think you've ever cooked dinner. And I was like, that's been out working on the car. What are you talking about, woman, you know? And... Uh, and I said, yeah, yeah, I really haven't much. Now, I, I do help clean up and wash dishes. I do all that always. But yeah, for most of our marriage, I think I've hardly, you know, I might have cooked some hot dogs or something on the grill, something, you know, you know, toasted some toast or put in a microwave pizza, whatever. You know, but I was like, yeah, that's right. And I said, well, I'll tell you what, um, why don't you start fixing the brakes and then I'll start ordering pizza. How about that, you know? So we kind of had this argument. She goes, no, seriously, you've never. And we really didn't get an argument about it, but I was just thinking. And I was thinking, you know, but why is that? She's right. I really never have because when I grew up, my dad worked on stuff with his hands. That was his role. You fix the washing machine. You fix the car. You cut the grass. And mama was in the house cooking a meal. And we got finished. There it was. And it was awesome. I didn't really think about that. That's just the roles. Is that right or wrong? I don't know. I don't think it is. It's just the roles that we choose, right? And so I said to her, I said, well, why don't you fix Abby's car next time? She goes, well, I'm not going to fix it. I'm going to take it to the mechanic. That's when I said, well, I'll just order pizza then, okay? But when I, when I talk to young people who are getting married and do some premarital counseling, and I say, you need to understand that this young lady you're about to marry, she grew up in a household where there were certain roles and certain things that were done. Somebody did the the checkbook, and I don't know if it was her mama or her daddy, but you better find out about that. And this young man grew up in another household where mom and daddies did different things, and you better know what that was, and y'all got to come together and say, what do you mean you're going to do the checkbook? <laughs> my mama always did the checkbook. No, no, my daddy always did the checkbook, and I'm going to do it. Y'all ever had those arguments? Or we don't leave the toothpaste top off at my house. <laughs> or you're going to wash dishes and use a vacuum cleaner in this house. You know, those kind of things come up, but it's roles, and not necessarily right or wrong, but we have to come together on those things, don't we? And Paul's saying it's the same way in the church. You have to be aware that some people come from a different background, and their roles and their perception roles are different, and we're trying to lead people to Christ, so think about how you worship. 
So that's very important, and I, I hope we can grab this. I share from another commentator when he said this, God's order is that the husband is the head of the wife as God is the head of Christ. But there's no inequality. There's no inferiority implied there at all. He's just saying this is God's order. And God and Christ are equal and united just as the husband and the wife are one. This is not a passage that teaches the woman is inferior to man. It's not a passage that says that she should be um, submissive to every man. No, but to specifically in marriage, this is helpful in God's order and spiritual headship in the marriage relationship. And in the Corinthian culture, a woman who covered her head during worship when she was in, in public displayed that she was submitting to authority and understood that. In today's culture, we no longer view that, that a woman's wearing of a head covering as a sign of submission is important. And probably y'all are glad about that. In most of our societies, you wear a hat, you wear a scarf, you cover your head because you wanted to, and that was a, uh, that's some kind of a fashion thing. But a woman has a choice to wear a head covering if she views it as a sign of her submission to the authority of her husband. Have you ever seen people that still do that today? Some in the Amish society, they still wear these coverings saying, oh, whenever they go into church, they do that. Some people take this still seriously today. But the real issue here is the heart and the attitude of obedience to God's authority and the submission to His established order as the Lord. However, it is a personal choice, and it's not something that we should judge anybody else on and go, hey, you're not wearing a hat and you don't really submit to authority. No, that's not true. We can do a lot of things on an outward appearance, can't we, that make it look like we're submitting when inside we're not submitting at all. You know what I'm saying? We do that a lot. So Paul also said to Timothy as he was writing to a young preacher in the biggest church in the New Testament, which was Ephesus, and he says, I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. So this morning, as men and women, whether we're single or married or whatever, wherever we are in life, we have to understand that as a follower of Jesus, we are, as Paul finishes our text, we either submissive to God's order and his standards, or we're contentious, or we're argumentative, or we're combative with that. And Paul says we don't need to be that way. Those last three words are stumbling blocks, contentious, argumentative, and combative. And he says, and are not leading people to Christ and not leading others in worship to focus on Christ. And Paul said, we have no such practice, or at least we should not, as a follower of Jesus, do anything that's going to be contentious or argumentative or combative in a worship service. We want to bring people to focus on Christ. So this morning, I ask all of us, what area of our life do we need to submit to God? What area of my life do I need to say, I need to change my behavior, not God's standard? I don't need to say, yeah, well, Paul was right on that other stuff, but not on this one. He's a nut. No, that's God's word. He was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write those things. And there's areas of our life we need to submit to Christ for not only our own personal maturity and growth, but also for the sake of someone else's maturity and growth. And we need to be thinking about that in the body of Christ.